Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Anthony Dapperen, author of the book City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong, and City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong, was my guest on today's show. We covered the Hong Kong protest movements that have unfolded over the past two decades, their ongoing struggle with authoritarian China attempting to impose their rule on a still somewhat independent Hong Kong, and how the pro-democracy protest movement has been affected by the pandemic and by the lockdown. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Anthony Dapperan. Uh, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for uh, agreeing to, to chat to me. Sure, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, do you want to start with um, maybe perhaps a, a little background on yourself and how you came to Hong Kong in the first place? Yeah, sure. I'm originally from Australia, uh, but I uh, studied um, studied law and Chinese at university in Australia, and then after that went to the study for two years in Beijing. Um, and then after that, thought I would want to be somewhere where I could used my both my Chinese language skills and my legal studies and Hong Kong proved to be a, a suitable place to do that. So I, I moved to Hong Kong originally to, to start work as a lawyer and um, I've been here pretty much ever since with a few diversions back to Beijing along the way in between. Did you learn Chinese or, or Cantonese? I learned Mandarin. Yeah. Mandarin, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, unfortunately, I, I don't speak uh, Cantonese, the, the dialect spoken here in Hong Kong, uh, super well. I mean, I, I know a little, but um, yeah, not enough to, to be bold enough to say that I speak it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is it is it quite common to to learn Mandarin in Australia? Is that is the, I don't know. It's not it's not a very common thing in in the UK. I mean, do you think it's more prevalent there? Yeah, uh, perhaps a little. Um, when I was at school, it wasn't super common. I guess when I was at school, it was at a time when. You know, the, the Japanese economy was still pretty strong, and if anyone was going to be studying a, a, an Asian language, it was Japanese. Um, I think that Mandarin is much more common these days, but um, but still not not extremely prevalent. But I think just given Australia's location in the Asian region, Asian languages and and Chinese in particular are probably more popular now than than they were before and, and than elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Why Why did you want to learn Mandarin? Like, what 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 you know inspired you or, or made you want to learn Mandarin? <laughs> Yeah, um, well, actually, originally at my school, it was it was compulsory. So um, I can't even claim any great insight uh, or foresight into why I studied it. It was, it was compulsory um, uh, for everyone to study Chinese and French in, in the seventh grade, and then we had to keep doing a foreign language. So I started it because I had to, but then I found that it was interesting, and it was at a time when you know, China was going through big changes, and it seemed like it would be something that um, might be helpful in terms of, of getting a job in the future. So I, I, I kept studying it and, and, yeah, just began to travel to China. And, of course, that sort of made it a, a more relevant and, and fascinating to study the language. And then it sort of went, went from there. Okay. So then once you'd moved to Hong Kong, at what point did you begin writing about, about the protests or, or, you know, even just like attending the marches to, to see what was going on? Um, well, protest is such a a big feature of of Hong Kong life that um, you sort of almost can't avoid it in a way. Um, so even the, the very first year that I was in Hong Kong, which was 1999, I 
I joined a, 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 a protest march by the legal profession, uh, the first silent march that the legal profession had to protest against um, Beijing intervening and interpreting the basic law. Um, and, and then in subsequent years, as there were various protest movements that arose in Hong Kong, I was often there to observe and, and, and you know, to, 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 to take part. Um, so it's just sort of a, a significant feature of Hong Kong life. But I really only began to take a strong interest in Hong Kong's protest movements uh, and to, uh, to, to to start writing about them uh, during the Umbrella Movement in 2014, which was the first really large-scale protest movement that, that, that brought Hong Kong to a, a standstill back then. Um, and that movement happened very close to where I was living at the time. Um, uh, I could literally see the Umbrella Movement um, uh, occupied site and camp um, in Admiralty from where from my apartment window. So um, I'd spent a lot of time down there during then and then became interested in the movement and began writing about that then. And that, in the aftermath of that movement, I decided to, to write my first book about Hong Kong protest movements and, and the history of Hong Kong protest movement that led to that particular protest in 2014. Uh, do you want to give a little bit of explanation about what the 2014 protest was about? Mm, sure. So that that was about um, about uh, democracy in Hong Kong, specifically about the way that the the chief executive, who's the head of the Hong Kong government, would be selected. Um, the, um, the the arrangement up until that point had been that the chief executive was selected by a, a small circle committee of one thousand two hundred people. Um, and Beijing had promised that at a certain point that would be opened up to universal suffrage, so all the Hong Kong people would be able to vote for the chief executive. And this was something that people had been looking forward to. Um, and in 2014, when uh, Beijing announced the, the model that they would adopt for this, it turned out that they, it would be a very limited style of election. First, candidates would have to be approved by that same small circle election committee, and then a limited number of no more than two or three candidates would then be put forward to the people for a vote. So it was a very limited model of democracy. And the Umbrella Movement was was really a protest movement that was protesting against that proposal and demanding a, a more genuine model of democracy for electing the chief executive. Um, um, and so that was that was what that protest movement was all about. The One of the documentaries I watched in, in preparation for this was... Um, the Joshua Wong story, the I think mm. it's teenager versus uh, superpower. I think it's the title of it. Yeah, and the the end of it is is not a little bit despairing, but it felt like they they kind of were a bit un, un unsure of what they'd achieved at that point. Do you think mm. their their success in in galvanizing people and showing their willingness to stand up has been sort of proven in the protests that have erupted um, in 2018-2019? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, at the end of the Umbrella Movement, it, that protest movement did not achieve its stated aims, and uh, ultimately they they disbanded and, and, and gave up. The government had effectively waited them out. And, and at the time, people said, well, does that mean that that movement has been a, a failure? Um, but I, I think that it wasn't for, for, for two reasons. Um, firstly, that um, that um, the, uh, the the cultural awakening that the umbrella movement engendered was very important. A large amount of 
of documentary films, of artwork and, and other materials sort of uh, yeah, were generated by the umbrella movement, but also that, um, it, it, as you said, it, it sort of led to this political awakening among a whole generation of young Hong Kongers. And I think that uh, in the aftermath of that, um, uh, that sort of laid the foundation or laid the seeds that enabled um, that enabled uh, the events of, of last year to occur, really. Um, and I, I think that it was, uh, you know, it, so it was important from that point of view. And it's sort of an interesting parallel that now here we are, you know, at this point in time, uh, with an atmosphere that feels pretty similar to what it felt at the end of the Umbrella Movement, a sense that, you know, a bit of a sense of despair, a bit of a sense of have we achieved anything. Um, and so when people now are sort of asking questions about, well, does this mean the protests have failed? Or does this mean the end of protests in Hong Kong? I, I really just think back to that that feeling at the end of the Umbrella Movement, um, which clearly wasn't an end, even though it might have felt like one. And so I can't help thinking that, that we're probably in a in a similar position now. Mm, that's an interesting point, actually, that people shouldn't lose hope because, you know, it always feels like the end when you don't know what's what's coming next. Mm, yeah. There was there was a quote I came across of yours that said that the, I believe it was the 2014 protests really made you feel like a real Hong Konger. And um, mm. something that I kind of found in my research was that uh, in 2008, there, um, uh, like some polling was run and that uh, 18% of people in Hong Kong identified as, as Hong Kongers versus 39% of people who identified as, as Chinese. And by 2018, that had basically completely flipped and 40% of people yeah. identified as Hong Kongers and 18% of people were identifying as Chinese. Like that's 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 a real turnaround in, in, in 10 years. Yeah. Like why, why do you think that that occurred so rapidly? Because, like, for example, in, in Northern Ireland, where I'm from, we have, we have a similar sort of, not, not quite, but we have a, a question over whether we're British, whether we're Irish, or whether we're Northern Irish, like our own independent mm. thing, um, as a former colony, much like Hong Kong. Mm. Um, yeah. So we, uh, I say former, we're still part of the UK, but <laughs> I don't know if it, I don't know if it'd be still considered an empire. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so why... Like we've had um, maybe 20, 30, 40 years of, of, of time since, since there was a real um, fight started to break out about, about this identity um, problem in, in the Troubles. And mm. we still only have, say, one third of people identifying as, as Northern Irish. And it's, it's, it's mostly young people. And, and it seems mm. that the, the, the attitudes may be changing, but it's very slow. Even in a country where there was like political linked violence, like, why do you think it's changed so rapidly in Hong Kong? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, and that has been um, one of the issues that was really at the heart of, of last year's protest movement. Um, there's a sense that uh, there's this, well, this generation of young Hong Kongers who, who've grown up now with a Hong Kong that wasn't a British colony, so it's, it's not not part of the British Empire, it, it, it's a part of China, but also part of a China that they don't identify with. Um, they don't look at China and see a place that they aspire to be a part of, or, that, or indeed, as, as some uh, academic researchers who've interviewed some of these young Hong Kongers, when they go across the border as, as, as tourists or on school visits or to visit family, they find a place that's very unfamiliar to them. Um, 
And so with this growing sense that Hong Kong is a unique place um, and is uniquely home to them, there's a sense that's grown up of this sort of unique Hong Kong identity. And it's wrapped up in, of course, you know, the Cantonese language, as, as I mentioned earlier, this unique identity that Hong Kong has, um, the culture that's grown up around it, um, and, and then increasingly the political ideas that have grown up around that as well. Um, and, and so there's this sense that now Hong Kong is what they call a, uh, what some academics call a stateless nation, and people have drawn parallels between Hong Kong and places like uh, you know, Catalonia in Spain or Quebec in Canada or, or, or the Kurds you know, between uh, Turkey and Iraq, um, places where there is a, a unique peoples, a, a nation, but they don't have their own nation state. And, and clearly, this is something that is developed in Hong Kong and which part of the protest movement last year really helped to, I think, foster and engender and encourage with, with the result that, yeah, as you say, now you have surveys asking people in Hong Kong how they identify and increasingly they identify as Hong Kongers first, um, above and beyond being being members of, of, of the PRC. You said that there, there that the, there's unfamiliarity when, when Hong Kongers go across the border, especially younger ones. Yeah. In, in your opinion, or, or from what you've read, what, what are the differences that they really feel? Is it, is it just the atmosphere or is there like physical differences or, or, or the attitudes of people? Like what is it that, that feels most unfamiliar to them? Yeah, look, it's not, it's not necessarily going to be material things because of course China is modernized now. And if you walk into a, a shopping mall in mainland China, it's going to look just as good as a shopping mall in Hong Kong and the subway systems there and you know, it's like the subway systems here. So it's, it's not necessarily a, a material difference. Um, I, I think certainly it's wrapped up with the you know, rights and freedoms that people enjoy here in Hong Kong that aren't enjoyed elsewhere in the mainland, uh, an uncensored internet, um, a sense that, that, that there is a, a degree of freedom that at least up until now has been enjoined here, which has led to a certain degree of, of, of free, free thinking and, and those sorts of things which I think people feel is is different, um, and just just cultural differences um, that uh, yeah give a sense that they are two quite different places. It's quite strange that you can go just directly across a border and it feels so different. I mean, mm -hmm. um, for me, if I if I go from from Northern Ireland into the the rest of the UK, it it okay, it might might look a little different, but that's just like the area you're in, in a slightly different architecture, mm -hmm. or 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 you know, just like it's a different place, but it doesn't feel that different. It's, it's... Yeah, no, no, indeed. But I mean, I think it's important to think of China, not just Hong Kong and China, but China as a whole, um, more like Europe than like a, a nation like the US or like Australia. So it's it's a very large landmass, but it also has a great degree of cultural variation, um, linguistic variation uh, from province to province in China. So there's a huge number of of you know regional cuisines, um, local dialects, um, and so indeed, you're moving across China from province to province can feel a little like moving from you know Spain to France to to Italy in a way. Um, so yeah, they they're familiar but but different in different ways. Now I think it's not necessarily as pronounced as that, but um, certainly there are cultural distinctions even within different areas of China. Mm. Well, yeah, it, China's just un unfathomably huge um, like just the, the, um yeah it's it, there's just some some countries in the world Egypt, I, I just can't wrap my head around how big they are and Ch yeah. china is one of them like, i lived in canada for a year that was just the, the same I was, 
drive like two hours to the nearest town and <laughs> it would be mine. <laughs> so what do you think gave people the hope that they could defeat like an, an increasingly kind of like bullish and authoritarian China? Like uh, Xi Jinping, or his name's a mouthful, mm. is, is increasingly described as, as the most powerful leader in China since, uh, since Mao and they're becoming more and more aggressive and especially in Hong Kong, what what gives people hope that they can they can stand up to such a huge superpower in your mind? Yeah, um, I don't necessarily think that they they think they can. Um, and, and I think also at the beginning, uh, at the beginning, I don't think people framed it in that way. I think people in Hong Kong saw this as um, a fight within Hong Kong, a struggle between the Hong Kong people and the Hong Kong government. Uh, it was originally uh, you know, proposed you know, that the, extra, the protest last year in 2019 was sparked by a proposed extradition bill that the Hong Kong government proposed to introduce into Hong Kong, and people were protesting against that. And in the past, there had been examples where they had successfully protested against the Hong Kong government, such as Joshua Wong's protest against a, a, a national education curriculum in 2012 and um, earlier protests against a, a national security law in, in 2003 that were successful. So there was a sense that this was part of an ongoing um, protest dynamic between the Hong Kong people and the Hong Kong government, which had gone both ways in the in the 20 odd years since the handover. Uh, and I think last year, at least at the, at the outset, was similar. So people didn't feel they were up against and, you know, an entire superpower. Um, but of course, as the protest movement developed and gained momentum and the demands spread out, and, and as China itself began to see this as a as a matter of, of national security, if you want to put it that way, or national importance, and, and became increasingly um, engaged in the in the movement, then it did become this struggle between the people of Hong Kong and 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 China, um, which of course is an un, unwinnable battle for the people of Hong Kong. Um, and, and I think that is why um, there are sort of a, a couple of different ways that people here would now frame that. One is to say that uh, that that's why they. Um, welcome sort of the support of the international community and the involvement of, of, of countries such as the US who, who stepped in and made Hong Kong sort of one of the, the central points of the, the US-China relationship and indeed other countries including the UK have, have stepped in and spoken out for Hong Kong. And so I think from the Hong Kong protesters' point of view, they think of themselves as not being alone but having other countries in the world sort of standing with them. Um, but then secondly, I think there's a, there's a slightly... Um, a slightly fatalistic angle to at least some element in the protest movement that say that, you know, they realize there's nothing they can do um, to defeat China, as it were, but they feel that, that, that the current regime is not sustainable indefinitely. And at such point as something changes in China, um, that will be when the opportunity arises for people in Hong Kong to change their position here. And so that's sort of a uh, a long-term game that they look at in that sense. Um, so yeah, that, that's the I guess the only way that they can look at what they're facing um, and and put that into a, a perspective that makes sense. So you think that the the battle that that protesters have been have been fighting sort of on and off since uh, two thousand three, maybe you could mark the real start of it 
was that 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 was maybe the first big movement since ninety seven um, and the handover. So you think that 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 struggle has been essentially about holding off the the Chinese government until the point at which there will be some sort of opportunity uh, to to take back the 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 freedoms or to demand and and like establish the freedoms that they were promised in the ninety seven um, handover agreement. Yeah, look, all, really all of the protest movements, I think, have at their core um, the aim of trying to protect the rights and freedoms that Hong Kong already enjoys and to try to push for what they promised in the basic, in the basic law, which is universal suffrage for electing the chief executive and, and universal suffrage for electing the legislature. And there's been a sense over the years, but especially in the last five years that those rights and freedoms have gradually been encroached upon and those promised changes have been pushed further and further back. And, and, and so, I mean, you know, in many ways, I think that what, what the Hong Kong protesters for isn't asking, are asking for isn't particularly radical. They're only asking for what's actually provided in their own constitution um, and, and nothing more than that. And, and what they're, the promise they're entitled to have, you know, well in advance of 2047, which is when all those things expire and China has the right, if they so wish, to, to unwind it all and absorb Hong Kong completely. Um, so, that, yeah, yes, it's all part of this struggle ultimately tied into protecting those rights and freedoms and protecting the identity of, of Hong Kong as a unique, unique place within China. What do you mean by the current regime is not um, indefinitely sustainable. Do you just mean that that Jai Jinping will die eventually, or do you think that they're 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 making like? Do, do, are you saying that the current like leadership is is not as stable and and strong as or <laughs> there I am strong and stable. Wow, um, it's not as as strong and stable as they might uh, you might think, given the the press and the the coverage of him. Um. Yeah, and just to, just to clarify, it's, it's not what I'm saying, but what what Hong Kong protesters tell me, okay. um, and what their position is, um, and and yeah, I've heard it expressed to me by them uh, in 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 I guess two different ways. One is the more passive way, which is that they just believe that the general belief that an authoritarian regime like that cannot last forever, and whether it's you know. Xi Jinping personally, or, or the Communist Party's rule generally, or, or what have you, that they're eventually, they believe, going to be pressures brought to bear as they were on the Soviet Union that will lead to some form of change in, in the system of government in the mainland. Um, so that's, that's the more passive view. So the, the second, more active way of putting it uh, is perhaps summed up in this slogan that some of the protesters use, Lam Chao, which roughly translated is sort of, you know, this, if we burn, you burn with us mentality, which is that some of the protesters believe that if they can cause significant chaos in Hong Kong, that might be a domino that eventually leads to the collapse of the Communist Party, which is a very sort of slightly wild fantasy, I think, on some the part of some of the protesters. But that's sort of another another way of how some element of them look at it. So it's sort of this sense that whether it's passively or actively one way or the other, there's a sense that if there is a, a, a change in the way in the way that mainland is governed and the way that the mainland views Hong Kong, then that will be an opportunity for, for, for Hong Kong. Hmm. So do you think that the the, the promised 
uh, freedom of speech, uh, like full voting rights. Do you think that that is ever going to come? Um, at the moment, there's so correct me if I'm wrong. The 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 way that the Hong Kong political system works is you've got uh, seventy um, seventy elected members of the legislative council, uh, forty of which are elected by the people, and thirty of which are given to like industry and, and corporations, and then the the leader is uh, essentially chosen by Beijing at the moment, the the chief executive. Mm. So that, that, that's that's broadly correct, I guess, with the tweak that the the leader is is chosen by a a 1,200-person election committee, but that committee is stacked with pro-Beijing people. So effectively, they choose whoever Beijing's preferred candidate is. Um, uh, but yes, that's, that's, that's overall the structure. So we, we don't have a, a proper representative democracy system here. Um, uh, but we do have, or at least up until now, have had all the rights and freedoms that you'd normally expect to go with a representative democracy, including freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, all these rights and freedoms that people enjoy and exercise when they go out and protest. Um, uh, and so that's sort of led to this instability where um, people have not been able to express their uh, dissatisfaction with the government or, or, or push for a, a change in government at the ballot box, but they are able to express themselves politically through political protests. And one of the things I argue in my books is that's one of the dynamics that has led to such a culture of political protest in Hong Kong. Um, but of course, that's a that's an an, a, an odd imbalance to have. Um, and uh, there clearly are you know, pressures to write that imbalance. And one of the pressures was to bring the level of representative democracy up to match the level of rights and freedoms. And that's what we saw in the umbrella movement and the protest movement last year, ultimately, in asking for the long promised universal suffrage. But the other way to solve the problem, of course, is to reduce the level of rights and freedoms to make the, the level of rights and freedoms match the non-representative nature of the government. And that seems to be what Beijing is doing with this new national security law, very much constraining what is and isn't permissible and constraining the, the the limits of the rights and freedoms that Hong Kong people can exercise. So when you ask sort of, will Hong Kong ever have the universal suffrage that it's promised? I think the answer is that it will only have it on Beijing's terms. It'll only have it um, in terms that Beijing feels are not, are not a threat to them. Um, and always in, in a form that, that, that Beijing is able to control. Um, and, and so I don't think yeah, Hong Kong will have necessarily ever the right, the the representative democracy, the universal suffrage that that they, the the more idealistic Democrats among them envisage. Um, but Beijing may eventually grant them some model that 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 is enough for Beijing to sort of tick the box and also gives Beijing the level of control that they want over the process. I think the, the bottom line from Beijing's point of view, and and I think in particular under Xi Jinping, is that is that no dissent um, or attempt to sort of undermine the party's rule is to be permitted in any part of Chinese territory, um, and that includes Hong Kong. And so I think the Chinese government, the central government now has been sort of taking moves to, to, to limit that in Hong Kong, um, to make Hong Kong more along the lines of what they would like it to be, which is not necessarily consistent with the way many of the Hong Kong people would like it to be. Do you think outside pressure will would will cause China to 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 maybe reconsider? Like, is that will will say trade restrictions or 
or or any sort of sanctions internationally, would that convince China to change their tact, or or are they just kind of too big to fail? Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. And, and China are always very clear in their statement that uh, the, the way they put it is very blunt. They say uh, uh, Hong Kong is China's Hong Kong. Um, and I don't think that this is one of those sort of bottom lines that, that, that China is, is, is not going to budge on. And this sort of um, international pressure is not likely to change its fundamental policies. But that said, I do think that international attention is important. It's, you know, uh, in the sense that you know, it's always better for things to be happening in 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 the light and in public exposure than to be happening in in the dark. Um, and so, to the extent that the international community is continuing to to pay attention and to publicise and to make China aware that they're watching, um, that's something that is going to, I think, be uh, you know, be, be 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 helpful at least in providing uh, uh, moderating the the worst excesses of the, of the Chinese government. Put it that way. Okay, I mean, is what what happens down the line in in twenty forty seven? Do are the Chinese just going to go well? So even even if the the protesters have achieved their aims of 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 perhaps getting some kind of of democratic reforms to give them some sort of autonomy that's not allowed in China, whilst that's still very in conflict with with um with the with Beijing's sort of desire to have no one criticize, speak out, or mm. talk about anything that goes on in, in Beijing or in China. Like, do, do you think 2047 comes and the Chinese just go, well, you know, we've set up this system, so we'll just let you keep that. <laughs> is, is that really going to happen? Well, that's a really interesting um, long-term bet that was made um, in 1984 by the, by the British government. Um, and, and arguably, Deng Xiaoping probably was on the same side of the bet. And, and I think what they all thought then was, as we got closer to 2047, Hong Kong and China, the rest of China, would, would likely be converging. And the expectation was that by that point, China would be looking a lot more like Hong Kong. Um, but as we've reached sort of the, you know, here we are sort of almost halfway to that point, um, and it's pretty clear that yes, indeed, they're converging. Um, and while materially um, the mainland is looking more like Hong Kong, um, politically they have not changed at all. And, and, and if anything, you know, Hong Kong is now changing politically to converge with the mainland. Um, and so I think from from the central government in Beijing's point of view, their hope is that by the time we get to 2047. Um, and, and that's, I think, part of the reason why they're putting in place all these policies now to allow a generation to live with them. But by the time we get to 20, 2047, Hong Kong will look a lot like they want it to look, which is still economically, you know, a free, you know, capitalist market economy with with a you know a convertible currency and an active stock exchange and all those all those things that that, that are good from China's point of view for the economy. But politically, it'll look more like China. People who are you know unlikely to criticize the government who are happy to take the, the bargain that as long as the government delivers material wealth, the people won't um, question the party's leadership or, or won't raise political demands. Um, and so I think that's the ideal from Beijing's point of view. Um, and as I say, that's why these various measures are being put in place now to try and bring Hong Kong to a point that 
by the time they get to 2047, there's not, it's not a debate that needs to be had because it's already been, already been settled. But I mean, we'll see about that. The Hong Kong people um, feel very strongly about their, their way of life and their rights and freedoms and feel very strongly about the way that Hong Kong is at the moment. Um, and I don't think necessarily passing a one generation is going to change when you think that 2047 is only 27 years away and, and most of the people on the streets protesting last year were were in their early 20s, uh, you know, late teens or early 20s. So they're only going to be in their, in their what, roughly 50 or so um, in 2047, um, in their 50s. So it's, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to sort of see what kind of a society Hong Kong is by then and, and whether that's changed by changing the, the education system here to try and change the next generation of Hong Kongers to make them more um, sort of on board with the party's agenda or whether it's going to change by immigration by bringing more people from the mainland across into Hong Kong and at the same time encouraging people who don't like what's happening here to, to move out um, or, or what that is. But that's um, that's all uh, that's all sort of maybe thing, but that's sort of some of the dynamics that are in play. What's your impression of how the, the young people who are in school now are, are feeling towards the, the, the pro-democracy movements and towards China? Um, something that a friend of mine who, who actually lived in Hong Kong for, for a number of months had, had mentioned when, when they were in China was that, um, that the, the, the young people in China were far more pro-Beijing, pro-the party than, um, than the older folks in China. She said that the older people were the ones who, who felt most resistant to, to the sort of ex expansive authoritarian surveillance capitalism sort of society that, that China has kind of, kind of fostered. Do you, is, is, is that your impression of, of the kids of today or are they just like Joshua Wong's uh, generation who were, who were far more sort of pro pro democracy and, and and well the the scholarism movement that was very much uh, anti national education and, and and successfully won that battle yeah no the, the the young generation in hong kong at the moment are, are overwhelmingly supportive of the protest movement i mean the, the protesters last year um were very you know led by young people both you know kind of university students and people in their 20s as well as teenagers and school students um school School campuses were one of the key battlegrounds, if you will, in the in the protests. And school children held protests where they would link up hands in human chains outside their schools. Um, uh, you know, there were there were teenage school kids getting arrested during protests. I mean, it's it's, it's very clear that this entire generation of of young people in Hong Kong are still very strongly behind the the protest movement. And, and indeed, the the education bureau now in Hong Kong is really seeking to to crack down on, on Hong Kong schools. And they're saying that, you know, chanting of protest slogans or singing of protest songs is banned on Hong Kong school campuses and um, schools are not supposed to allow people to talk about political issues. And it's, 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 a, it's a, I think a major, a major battlefront now in the government's war to, to put an end to the protests and clamp down on dissent. But, but at the moment, yeah, the, the current young generation, I think it's fair to say, you know, to generalize that they're, they're very strongly in favor. Um, how similar to similar Joshua Wong and his generation. How effective is that? Is that campaign? I, I mean, it kind of relies on on the teachers and and, and leaders of mm. the schools to, or the headmasters or headmistresses to to enforce that. 
yeah. to your to your knowledge, how how effective has that clampdown been? Look, I I know that there's examples both of 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 headmasters who are very pro-government and who have been sort of implementing it very uh, eagerly. There are many examples of, of teachers who are very, um, who are also afraid and, and, and who strongly object to it. But um, w one thing I sort of have to know, but sort of slightly wryly is that the, the, the best way to, to get a teenager to want to do something is to tell them that it's banned, right? So I mean, you kind of wonder how effective it's going to be <laughs> if you make it rebellious and subversive and cool to support a protest movement, you know? I mean, it seems yeah. to be a slightly counterproductive way to go about it. Hmm. But anyway, that's, you know, what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a fair point, like often by crushing dissent then then you can can create martyrs and and create more more interest in it but then the mm. chinese government also were were incredibly successful unfortunately in um in the tiananmen square sort of massacre in in crushing dissent in mainland china so it's not like they haven't had success in in trying to do this kind of thing before mm. do you think that there's more fear now of china than there was maybe 10 years ago <laughs> Like I mean, for example, the the books. Uh, yeah, the, certainly. I, well, there was there was the people that went missing in two thousand eighteen. Five, I think it was five workers from a a bookstore mm. in in Hong Kong who were selling books mm. that are banned in China. They they all went missing in two thousand eighteen, and the and the bookstore shut down. Um, is do you think things like that make people more afraid of China, or do you think that sort of emboldens them to stand up against it? Look, certainly there's a, a great deal of fear now in Hong Kong, in particular around this new national security law that, that's you know, coming into force on the 1st of July or you know, 10 minutes to midnight or an hour before midnight on the 1st of July, um, has already been actively applied and the, the police are arresting people and warning people. And that's really caused a, a big chilling effect. And indeed, people are, are afraid of that new law and afraid of what it empowers the government to do and afraid that that law enables um, the mainland secret police to come in and operate inside Hong Kong, um, and so that's been that's been very um, that's been very alarming. I think certainly there's a degree of of fear here now that there wasn't here before. Yeah. So what the the not the new national security law came into effect the first of July. What was that that allows the the Chinese police to come in and and have jurisdiction in in Hong Kong? Yeah, so it does a couple of things. It, it introduces four new criminal offences, um, secession, subversion, terrorism, and colluding with foreign powers. And all of those offences are very broadly defined and, 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 and fairly rubbery and, and, and could be used by the authorities to cover all kinds of behaviour. So that's, that's the first thing the law does. But the, but the second thing it does is that it um, authorises the mainland security uh, organs and secret police from the mainland to set up um, offices in Hong Kong, which they which they were now done, um, and for them to operate here um, uh, effectively effectively outside the law. Um, and the law also says that in very serious cases under this national security bill, um, suspects can be taken from Hong Kong across the border to the mainland to face prosecution and trial. So it um, it's a it's a it's a pretty frightening set of set of laws, really. Um, and the implications that it has for, for in particular, protest leaders is, is, is quite serious. Um, how, so do you think this, this law has only been able to be sort of pushed through because of the, the, the lockdown and the pandemic? 
Uh, no, well, the, the, one of the other controversial things about it was the way that it was applied. It was um, not passed by Hong Kong's own government. It was um, formulated in Beijing and imposed upon Hong Kong by Beijing through a, uh, a sort of a backdoor tactic in Hong Kong's constitution, the basic laws. This was something that in itself was very controversial, that not only was this law so wide-reaching and so draconian, but it wasn't um, something that the Hong Kong government themselves developed. It was something that Beijing developed and, and effectively imposed on Hong Kong by, by fiat. Mm. So what, what was the backdoor that allowed them to, to implement it? Um, so there's a provision in Hong Kong's constitution that says the, the central government in Beijing um, can make laws for Hong Kong, which then can be applied directly to Hong Kong without the need to go through Hong Kong's legislative process. Now, the, the restriction technically is that this only applies to matters of foreign affairs, defense, or matters outside Hong Kong's autonomy. Um, and there's been an argument made, including by the Bar Association here in Hong Kong, that, that this law does not appear to fit those exemptions, so it should not be allowed to be imposed by this way. But, but of course, no one is able to, to challenge Beijing, sort of what they say goes, and Beijing say, well, this national security law is about the relationship between Hong Kong and the mainland, and it's about matters of, of national defense and national security, and therefore it's within our right to, to make this law and impose it on Hong Kong. It, it, we argue that it fits within this exemption, and so they have, they've done that. They've then you know, passed this law and, 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 and automatically applied it to Hong Kong. Is there fear that this might be used again to uh, implement further and future laws? Um, in, indeed, yeah, people uh, have raised that prospect. And indeed, even some um, pro-Beijing politicians or spokespeople for the central government have said, you know, this is not necessarily a one-off. And if Hong Kong continues to be uh, in a state of you know, chaos, as they describe it, and there's a need for them to intervene again, then they, they're willing to do so. So, um, you know, indeed, that's, that's a, fear that, a fear that people have raised. Yeah. Mm. Because I remember from my, my Cold War history class that we would, if we had ever had to write about how Russia or, or sorry, the USSR, America was fighting for or doing something for their own security, that you could literally talk about anything in terms of your security. Um, it's just, this is a really sort of like wide ballpark. And as soon as they, they've opened that yeah. up, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, you can't really put that back in the box now, now that they've, they've used yeah. it. Um, is, yeah. So there's there's no real way to, to make any kind of kind of challenge to this in, in in sort of formal settings at least. Not not to have the law repealed or amended. So now the battle is really around um, how the law is going to be interpreted and applied, and, and that that battle is sort of happening in real time now. So we have this law, but how where exactly do the boundaries lie around these offences? How will they be defined? How will people be prosecuted under them? That's all going to be decided as these cases come before the Hong Kong courts. Um, and so, as, as I said, this is happening now that a number of arrests have been made and these cases are starting to come before the Hong Kong courts. We had an important decision last week around the bail provisions in the national security law and under what circumstances people would be entitled to, to bail, which has been a, an important decision and has thankfully um, laid down at least from the court's point of view, some important 
rights for suspects and, and protections that will be um, protected as the courts apply this national security law. So it's going to be interesting to see as you know, how, as you say, how it sort of plays out in real life, bearing in mind, of course, that Beijing always retains the ultimate right of interpretation over this law. So if the courts in Hong Kong come up with something that, that Beijing really can't stomach, um, Beijing has the right to turn around and say, oh, no, actually, you've got that wrong. Here's what we meant here, and, and sort of change it all back again. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be, I think, an ongoing process of sort of trying to define what this means and how it's going to work. How, how independent, then, are the, the judges of 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 chinese influence like, like say say for example uh would they would they be trying to to be like helpful to the protesters and preserve some kind of rights whilst not being too bullish as to like upset the chinese government is that do you think that's something that's coming into the mind of uh, or going to come into the mind of judges making these these decisions i mean look hong kong's judiciary are still um you know, very much an independent judiciary, and I and I think overall have a a high degree of integrity. And I think they seek to apply the law, or you know, neutrally using all the the, the principles of of interpretation that are sort of set out in the in the common law. And and, I, and they would say, and I and I think it still is the case that they don't seek to favour any particular party or pursue any particular agenda, but just to to sort of you know, uh, call the law as as they see it, and I, and I think that is um, that is the way the judiciary has worked up until now. Now, is there any sort of something going on in the subconscious about you know wanting to protect rights and freedoms, or wanting to be careful not to trigger the you know, a political response from Beijing? You know, perhaps, but I think at least up until now, the, the Hong Kong judiciary has worked quite well as an independent judiciary, or with with some with a high degree of integrity. And the, the, really, the hope is that that will continue. So how has the, the pandemic and the lockdown affected the protests? Was there a complete halt? Like, do, do you want to maybe explain sort of what, what restrictions were in place in, in Hong Kong? And then that, that'll give us sort of a better idea of what was sort of allowed or what was acceptable. Yeah, look, even in the very early days of the pandemic, you know, going back to January, February, you know, but before things like lockdowns were in place um there's already a very high degree of awareness in hong kong that, that this that this uh, virus was out there and, and the memory of sars meant that people knew what that meant and knew what how to behave and so that meant that even then people were very reluctant to join in any large-scale public gatherings people were, were very wary of that so already at the beginning of the year the the attendance at any protest events was much lower as people were much more inclined to to stay indoors and avoid large public gatherings. But of course, as the pandemic then unfolded, we had here in Hong Kong, um, similar to most other places in the world, restrictions on public gatherings. Um, so there were at various points, restrictions on no more than no more than 50 in public and that went down to no more than i think eight in public i think at the moment we could be up to no more than four or no more than two in public but of course that you know it's changing as the virus situation changes and i think we're about to have it relaxed again somewhat as things come under control here but certainly you know, for, for most of this year there's been some degree of restrictions in place that have restricted uh, large public gatherings outdoors and police have indeed used that actively to to prevent protest marches happening to find people who, who gather in public places and that's been one of the one of the key tools that the government has used to 
to, to, to stop further protests occurring this year. On top of that, the government just used the pandemic um, a week or two ago to announce that they were going to be postponing elections that we had coming up. Yeah, we were scheduled to have elections for our legislative council at the beginning of September. Um, they were going to be you know, clearly very important elections. There were likely to be a, a referendum on the whole protest movement. And I think the, the pro-democracy parties were expecting to do very well in those elections. But um, the government, you know, saying is, this decision was made purely on, on, on public health grounds, but of course you could take that uh, for what you will. Um, announced that those elections will be postponed for an entire year. So it's not just a matter of postponing them for a few weeks or for a few months, but they've postponed the elections for an entire year. Um, so that's uh, that's been another thing that the government's been able to do. I, you know, presumably they're hoping that in the intervening year, they're gonna be able to you know, further crack down on dissent and, and ensure that the, the, the Democrats perhaps don't do as well in those elections as they might've done, given how popular they are, unpopular the government was after protests after the introduction of this new national security law and, and and so on so it's um that's been another major impact of the of the of the the covid pandemic on on the landscape here in hong kong mm. now i have seen polling that suggested that the the, the protesters um and the the, the pro-democracy movement was still still had majority support even though the the protests hadn't been as highly attended due to pandemic and fear and you know people not wanting to to end up with with more restrictive um, lockdowns or, you know, potentially people dying um, because of, like you said, the experience with SARS. Um, do you think that people find the protests to be still, like protests to be still supported? Like, I understand that the pro-democracy movement still has majority support as far as I can tell from the polling. But someone I spoke to, for example, from Extinction Rebellion uh, recently was saying that they were having trouble trying to get people to agree to uh, protests and action at the moment because people were unsure as to how to gauge public opinion as to what's acceptable at the moment in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. Do you find that there's reluctance to do like big events, marches, protests because of that? Like, Do you think people are genuinely like not wanting to do it because of that or yeah what's what's the kind of opinion on on that side of things from from what you've um, been able to see um yeah the, the sense i get is that yeah mainstream opinion would be people are uh reluctant to join large-scale public gatherings because of the virus but as soon as virus restrictions were lifted, they would be willing to do so. Um, I mean, there have been many people who've been coming out in spite of the restrictions and gathering um, in shopping malls or for other occasions to protest and uh, and trying to express themselves. Um, I think many people are, are, are cautious, as I say, because of the virus, because of the national security law as well. But um, I think the sentiment is still there. Um, but yeah, I think it's we're unlikely to see any kind of large-scale actions, protest actions, un, un, until at least until the virus situation is under control. Yeah. Do you think it'll be, con, con, do you think there will reach a point where people believe it's more under control than the government are saying in order to try and prevent more protests? Do you think that the, the period like this kind of restrictions will be extended uh, as a way to, to ensure no more protests for at least a while or... <laughs> Yeah, and we'd reached a point. Uh, we'd reached a point a, a month or two ago before we had this second wave of infections, where 
um, pretty much every restriction had been lifted except the restriction on numbers of people who were allowed to gather uh, gather outdoors in public. I mean, even, uh, you know, uh, places of worship were allowed to open and you could have hundreds of people gathering indoors, but the ban on more than 50 people gathering outdoors was still in place. I think people have felt at that point that it was clearly just an attempt by the government to try to prevent protest marches happening. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on the government, obviously, to start, as there is everywhere in the world, to, to start easing lockdowns for the for the sake of, of getting businesses back into action and, and, and schools back to class and all those sorts of things. And and I, and I think that'll start happening gradually. But the, uh, yeah, the, the gatherings of large numbers of people in public in the open air will probably be the last thing to come back, even though many infectious diseases experts say that, you know, that's one of your least worries. You, know, you should be more worried about gatherings of people indoors in high density than people in, you know, outdoors much streets. But uh, there's obviously a, a political factor there as well. Yeah. So why did you choose to write your, your first book and, and then the, the, the more recent one? Yeah, so the first book, um, as I said, was sort of in the wake of the umbrella movement, which I'd, I'd seen and up, up, up very close and been involved with. And I felt that it was an interesting story to be told about that protest movement, which at the time was was the biggest protest movement that Hong Kong had seen. It was certainly very significant. Um, uh, but at the time, it had, it had attracted a lot of media attention, but it hadn't really been fully contextualized. And I felt that it was would be important and helpful to put that protest movement in its historical context and to understand the long history of protest in Hong Kong and, and the dynamics, as I was explaining earlier, that lead to political protest playing such a prominent role in, in Hong Kong. And, and so that's why I, I wrote the first book, just to to, to do those things and, and, and to sort of with a focus on the umbrella movement as well as sort of the, the history leading up to it. Um, and, and so I wrote that book and then that came out in uh, 2017, um, the 20th anniversary of the handover. And at that time, as I said, we were in the, the post-umbrella movement um, lull and, and a lot of people at the time sort of said to me, well, your book's called City of Protest, but, you know, is Hong Kong still a city of protest? Everything seems pretty quiet now. And I said, well, look, you know, I am, um, you know, don't want to make any bold predictions, but you know, all the all the underlying factors that I sort of pointed to in my book are still there, and nothing's changed. So I dare say, you know, it might come back again sometime. So of course, when the the the, the movement um, burst out last year, the the, the large extradition bill movement, um, I've not only felt you know happily vindicated, but also you know it was very interesting, and and having been the person who sort of wrote the book on protest in Hong Kong, I had a lot of. Um, uh, I wrote more about last year's protest movement and, and spoke to a lot of people um, in the media about it. And as the events wore on, it was, and as that that movement grew larger and larger, it became clear that I had to address it in my work somehow because it it was it, it had sort of you know it was a, it was a landmark you know even bigger than anything that had come before. And so at first I thought, well, maybe I could do a sort of a a reissue of my first book with a new chapter at the end to sort of update it to what had happened last year. But then, the, again, the longer that the protest movement went on last year and the more complex it became and the more that different uh, elements of history and of the past um, became relevant, uh, it was clear that a, a whole new book was going to be needed just to both describe what happened last year in all its complexity and, and try to contextualise last year in in the history with a, you know, a slightly different angle from what I'd done previously. So it was at that point that I decided, I decided okay, I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to address this with not just a, a new chapter, but a whole new book. So do you think that that feeling that things may come back again is still there? Do you, 
is that is that is that yeah, what we're look, looking I, at I, come next year or, or? I, I i i do and I, I don't want to sort of put a i don't want to put a time limit on it i mean it, it was sort of five years from the umbrella movement to to the uh to the extradition bill movement of last year um but look, all the underlying factors are still there. Um, all the you know, none of the political issues that were raised in the protest last year have been addressed. Um, the same level of, of of discontent and anger among the population is still there. Um, there's still no other means for them to to express themselves politically or get involved. What the government clearly now is trying to do is trying to shut off protests as a means of political expression as well. And that's where I think part of this draconian national security law and the way it's being implemented and the way it's being applied is to try and clamp down any expression of dissent. You know, slogans are illegal, singing songs are illegal, um, you know, helping you know, protesters engaging in various acts of, you know, blocking traffic or, or, or vandalizing public facilities is terrorism. Um, anyone who helps them is aiding and abetting terrorism. And these are, you know, extremely, you know, harsh means of trying to frighten people away from protest. But I, I you know, my, if I had to make a bet, my bet would be that it's going to come back in one way or another. Um, it might not be this year, it might not be next year, but um, at some point when there's another triggering event, um, it will come back in its latest incarnation. And I dare say this dynamic of repression and then pushback is going to be a continuing cycle, um, you know, perhaps all the way to 2047 or beyond. That seems like a, a nice place to leave things. Uh, is there a, you? Do you want to give like some plugs for some stuff before before we finish? Uh, no particular plugs. Um, obviously, I've, my my new book, City on Fire: The, the Fight for Hong Kong, is um is is my yeah is my latest book. I um and uh, yeah, been a pleasure to chat and, and yeah, hope people uh, if they're interested can read the book. Uh, I will certainly be ordering the new one. It sounds fantastic. Uh, and oh, last question: Is it? Dapperin or Dapirin or how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, yeah, sure. It's it's Dapperan. Dapperan, okay. Dapperan, okay. Yeah, that means that I will definitely pronounce it correctly in the intro. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book Brexit: The Establishment Civil War is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.